0: chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast, going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I am your host, Jack, better known as
1: And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And
0: welcome to the 69th, yeah, episode of the Nauticast entitled Wounded Lions, an analysis of the Game of Thrones Tyrion 9, in which Tywin Lannister gets a rundown on all the myriad ways in which he and his family are doomed, and decides to send Tyrion to court to take charge to Tyrion's surprise, surprise, you're going to King's Landing, Tyrion Lannister, Uh, have a fun Clash of
1: Kings. Absolutely, this chapter is definitely a highlight reel of all the ways in which the Lannisters are in trouble, and as two people who are not especially fond of the Lannisters as a whole, and Tywin in particular, it's definitely delightful, but of course, like any other animal, the lion is most dangerous when it's wounded, so at the end of this chapter, we're going to see what the Lannisters are going to do next, and the Clash of Kings is in large part about those moves, so... This is a very exciting and important chapter in a lot of ways.
0: Yes, this going to be so much fun to get into Clash of Kings. And we are now, we're just about three, four chapters short of Clash of Kings itself. So stay tuned. We got some stuff coming as we get into a Clash of Kings. especially stuff for our patrons. And speaking of our patrons, this episode is brought to you by our small council members. Our Hand of the King, Wolfman, Zach. Grand Maester, Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N. Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves. Sir Keith J, Master of Whisperers. Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Jancy O, Lady Commander of the Night's Watch. Lord Jean, Master of Coin. Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes. Ragged Michael, Ward of the North. Nelson the Hammered, Prince of Dragonscone. Scarlet the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whisperers. Lord Baby, the Onion Baby. Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zorce. Lord Micah, Ward of the West and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, The Gym That Was Promised. The High-Bearded Priest, The Blue-Ringed Octoling. Lord Jake, Assistant to The Hand of the King. And Lady Zina Valyrian. Thank you, Counselors, very much. Thank you, Counselors, as always. Our spoiler warning, as we say on all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of
1: Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and Everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Michael Y, a Sworn Sword patron, who asks, Howdy, gentlemen. My questions revolve around why Dorne and the Reach were ignored by several key players. For the Reach, it seems as though Tywin just completely ignored them at the start of the war. The Reach has arguably been the greatest rival of the Westerlands in history, and then Tywin takes the majority of fighting men to the Riverlands where he will eventually get his ass handed to him by Rob. If Mace and company had gone north rather than east, Tywin would have been done for. No relief army to be raised, multi-front war, supply chain ruined. I get that Tywin doesn't know about Renly at first, but you'd think he'd want to lock down the Reach. And why didn't Mace and Renly raid the Westerlands for some easy victories? Were they that worried about Stannis? Definitely an interesting question and one that's very relevant to this chapter because so much of the second half of this chapter especially is about Tywin looking at all his options and and threats and enemies and deciding what to do about them. So what do you think about that, Jeff? What is your perspective on how Dorne and the Reach are factoring into these early decisions?
0: You know, it kind of reads like a little bit of early onset awkwardness in that, yes, the Reach probably should have been looked at by Tywin Lannister before he immediately turned towards the Riverlands while leaving his southern flank essentially unguarded. But I, I think ultimately Tywin made the gamble that the Reach would stay neutral in any war of the Five Kings, and that they don't really have a compelling interest in seeing either the Lannisters win or the Starks win, and they don't really have any compelling interest in Edmure Tully and Hoster Tully. So I think that's part of the reason why Tywin assumed that the that the Reach would stay neutral, and that Mace Tyrell would be unlikely to come forge come bungling into the into the battle itself. But at the same time, though, when we're getting to this chapter, because Emmett, you did mention that this chapter deals with all the various threats that Tywin Lannister is dealing with. We do have to look at it in terms of like, yeah, this is kind of something that Tywin should have considered before he took most of his army out of the Westerlands, leaving hid the southern portion of the Westerlands undefended. Now, it's, I, I think like... Ultimately, the story is pushing the reach towards a confrontation with Stannis Baratheon, and I think that at the same time George is writing that with the overall narrative, the overarching narrative purpose of that Renly is going to be engaging with Stannis first, and the Baratheon dispute needs to be resolved prior to any reach Westerlands, Tywin Laster, Mace Tyrell interaction, alliance, or confrontation. So I think that's what's going to that's what's happening ultimately. But I do think that Dorne is a much more interesting question because we're going to talk about this more in the chapter itself. But I do wonder why Tywin just completely ignores Dorne altogether. Does he just think that they're just totally out of it? Or does he have some sort of Intelligence that Dorne Martell is not going to be moving against them at any time soon. Is Varys feeding time and information, saying that Dorne is, you know, not going to be involved in any of the War of the Five Kings because Varys is holding back on information about Dorne because it relates to Young Griff and the potential alliance that Young Griff might have with Dorne. Wants to keep them isolated from any War of the Five Kings. I don't know. I'm talking very quickly, and I will turn it over to <laughs> Emmett because he's got he's got the good words, and I've got the, the fast words this evening.
1: Ah, oh, hush. I mean, I think. Part of it, as you say, is just George getting all his dominoes in order and dealing with each narrative element at a time, especially as the story starts expanding well beyond its original outline, so the reach don't factor into Tywin's considerations because they're not heavily factoring into George's considerations at this point. I'm sure he knows he wants Renly to eventually merge as a faction, but he hasn't worked out the, the exact politics and all the supporting characters involved. I'm sure he hasn't thought through the details of the eventual tywin Tyrell alliance, so they're just not as central to this part of the narrative as uh, the Starks and the Lannisters, but... They are definitely crucial in terms of how you think about how these political actors were operating before the war broke out. And something we're going to be talking more about in this episode is how the the Starks kind of blundered into this pre-existing tension between the Lannisters and the Baratheons. So that's really who Tywin was preparing to fight. And, And the question that interests me here is what Tywin thought the relationship between Renly and Stannis was going to be like. This is something we're going to be getting into more when we talk about Clash of Kings is... Uh, some people assuming that Renly and Stannis are going to be working together, or at least having, you know, a non-aggression pact between the two of them, and of course they end up coming to blows, so does Tywin think that Renly is going to bring the Reach into Stannis's camp once, mm. once the war eventually breaks out, but the, the Tyrells are, are known for having a somewhat standoffish relationship with Stannis? I think ultimately the the explanation here is is just uh, has to do with George's sequencing and <laughs> that 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 he needed Tywin to focus on the Starks and the Tullys. But if there is an in-universe justification, I think that's Tywin was getting ready to fight the Baratheons, and then Ned being named Hand and Catelyn snatching Tyrion kind of threw a wrench in the works. And in order to in his mind keep his pride and reputation intact, he had to advance up the timetable. I, I think it makes sense that the Renly and the Reach army wouldn't invade the Westerlands because their, their eventual goal was King's Landing, no matter what. And that if, if Rob hadn't been there playing offensive linemen, so to speak, Renly might have had to move a lot quicker in order to deal with Tywin and King's Landing.
0: I think that's that's totally fair and, and justifiable in terms of in-universe reasons why Tywin wasn't concerned with the reach. And I think it's a really good point that we've, we've made it several times now in several different episodes in the past about how Ned, Catelyn, Robb Stark are all stumbling into potentially years at the the end of years long conspiracies that are going on with various players in the in the war of the five kings whether that's going to be Stannis and what's what he knows about the incest and about the incest babies Renly and his relationship with the reach all, of these, all of these different players and what Tywin is planning as well with all the Baratheons and so forth. So I think that's a really good point. I think that maybe at some level Tywin knows that there's some shenanigans at work between Renly and Stannis. Although, like we talked about in Tyrion 7, I want to say, when we did that analysis, we did talk about how Tywin just sort of assumes that the Baratheons are going to be working together as opposed to working in opposites towards each other. So... You do have to wonder how much the Tywin knows and how much of it is just kind of like ends up working itself out. I do think that George ends up realigning things a bit, narratively speaking, in terms of like the overall purpose and what who all is going to be on each side come the War of the Five Kings when he gets in specifically to a Clash of Kings. But he does set the pieces up here so he can kind of go in a variety of directions, which he ends up going in one specific direction, I think, which I think makes for an excellent story altogether.
1: I think you may have hit on something that Tywin may have expected the Tyrells to stay neutral at first and maybe the Martells as well that they would stay aloof and see which side won because uh, certainly neither of those families have a good relationship with him but they also don't have a necessarily good relationship with the Baratheans either and he didn't see coming that Renly would split the Barathean camp and then mm-hmm. have the Tyrells give the Tyrells a candidate that wasn't Stannis to make a drive for the throne so maybe maybe that's a surprising part of their plan. That's
0: good, man. I think that puts it together. I think that puts a nice bow on this answer for this question. So thank you sir michael y for the question this question came from him very recently we did put up a post on patreon asking for questions from our sworn sword and above patrons and those of you who are ten dollar above sworn sword kingsguard or small council patrons have the ability to ask us questions that we will answer on the nauticast so if you're interested in that check us out at patreon.com forward slash nauticast asoif and also if you guys are interested too our recent episode whitewashed danny john interior in game of thrones is out for all five dollars above patrons at this point at the point that you're listening to this
1: episode, it's, it's already been out there.
0: So check that out again. That is also at patreon.com forward slash <laughs> not A-S-O-I-A, not A-S-O-I-F.
1: Well said, sir. We had a lot of fun recording that episode. All right, we have some cool patron-only episodes coming down the pipeline as well. And uh, we're going to be enjoying those just as much as our introductory episodes to Clash of Kings. So check out patreon.com forward slash not a cast A-S-O-I-F if you have not already.
0: Absolutely. So, Tyrion. Tyrion of House Lannister. This is his final chapter in A Game of Thrones. We are, again, just knocking off final chapters one after the other at this point. Sansa, Bran. We haven't gotten to Daenerys, Jon, or Catelyn yet. Those are coming up soon. But Tyrion here is basically a resetting of the board and opening up all the possibilities to come A Clash of Kings. And here is the synopsis for A Game of Thrones, Tyrion 9. They have my son, Tywin Lannister says, and yes, yes they do, the exhausted messenger says to Emmonson, my utter schadenfreude. One of your sons, Tyrion thinks, but doesn't say. Tyrion loves Jamie, but he's pretty glad he wasn't with him at the Whispering Wood. But in this room, things really aren't that much better. Tywin is surrounded by toadies, <clears throat> his, quote, assembled captains and bannermen, and they're all quite silent at the story the courier tells. They're also probably a bit tired themselves having marched day and night in a desperate attempt to reach Jamie in time. And of course, because this is Tywin, those who couldn't keep up on the march, including the wounded, were left along the side of the King's Road to die. Because of course, it's fucking Tywin Lannister. Meanwhile others had deserted. I guess leave no man behind isn't Tywin's driving motivation here. They made it as far as the end of the crossroads before word had reached the Lannisters that Robb Stark had reached for a run days and days ago. How could this happen? Sir Harry's of the Blue Cock Sigil moans. How? Even after the Whispering Wood, you had Riverrun ringed and Iron surrounded by a great host. Sir Harry's goes on to say that Jamie was being a damn fool for splitting his army into three camps to surround Riverrun, but Tyrion ain't about having Jamie's name sullied by someone who has a Blue Cock for a sigil who married into the lasters, and that being his claim to fame. And Kevin gives a more fact based assessment, stating that splitting an army into three camps is the only way to besiege the castle, given the geography of Riverrun. Situated on a speck of land with the Tumblestone River flowing into the Red Fork, and when the sluice gates open, it creates something like a third river, so Riverland is essentially an island in the case of a siege, so Jamie would have to split his army into three. Whew, there was no other way, Kevin Lannister concludes. The courier, who just have, must have had the most amazingly, practically bird's eye view of the entire encampment in battle, backs Kevin up, talking about how they built a palisade of sharpened wooden stakes around each of the camps, but they didn't have warning when the Starks descended on them. The courier, basically the Bloodraven omniscient of the entire battle, states that the Northern Camp was attack was attacked first a day after Jamie went to deal with what he thought was Mark Piper's raiding parties. You see, they were told that the Starks were on the east bank of the Green Fork, after all. And you're outriders, Gregory Kilgain asks. They saw nothing. They gave you no warning. Well, no, not precisely. Jamie's Outriders kept mysteriously disappearing. They thought that this was Mark Piper and his 50-50 pen? Pr- oh, okay, sure, guys. Mark Piper and 50 dudes would totally explain why all your Outriders are going missing. <clears throat> so, Gregor offers the advice of taking out the eyes of the, fa- of the failing Outriders and giving them to the next set of Outriders. And if that doesn't work, take out their eyes and give them, to th- and, give them and the previous set of eyes to the third set of Outriders. Six eyes in total. Horrifying. Tywin, silent, thank you, studies squirt silent also, and Tywin is unsure whether his dad approves or disapproves of what the mountain is advising. And that silence was typical of Tywin in council meetings, something Tyrion tried to copiously copy. But this particular silence was atypical. Hell, Tywin wasn't even drinking his obviously purchased at local fair value price wine. The courier continues with the story, talking about Brendan Blackfish coming down on the northern barricade with his vanguard, moving all the stakes aside to let the main army push through the northern camp, torches and swords in hands to kill some Lance goons and burn their tents. Our brave courier was sleeping in the western tent when the fighting ball broke out, and Lord Brax, commander of the western camp, attempted to ford the river on board rafts, all all in armor to assist the northern camp. Alas, so alas. The current pushed that army down from the northern camp as the Tully garrison tossed rocks at them from catapults. Several of the boats got hit with those rocks, and they overturned in the current so very tragically or split into splinters. And those survivors who made it to the other side of the river were met with stark swords. Oh, Sir Fulhamet Brax, didn't see you there. Did you have any questions about, you know, your dad or something? Oh, did did he make it? Well... Sorry, my lord, the messenger said. Lord Brax was clad in plate and mail when his raft overturned. He was very gallant. Tyrion thinks that maybe crossing a body of water, Victorian style all clad up in armor is totally fucking asinine, and while I'm no engineer or scientist, I suspect that Tyrion is correct in this. But to the story, but back to the story of the Lannisters getting pantsed by a 15-year-old, the middle Lannister camp was overwhelmed as more Stark troopers came pounding in from the west, led by Great John Umber and rob stark himself with Greywind running beside him god this is so fucking satisfying to recount even all these years after i finished watching season one and reading game of thrones it's just it's great the lancers tried to form a shield wall to hold off rob's cavalry attack but lord titus blackwood led an attack from river itself against the southern camp taking them in the rear then great john umber burned the lancers siege towers titus blackwood freed sir emir tully and the rest of the prisoners and the only lancers camp unengaged in the battle in the words of the United States Marine Corps, decided to, quote, advance backwards with about 4,000 men minus the Tyroshi sellswords and his band of troops who had turned cloaked for Robb Stark. Kevin Lancer gets all angry about this particular sellsword, especially after he had told Jamie not to trust sellswords. Tywin, though, remains still a stone, even as Harris Swift starts whining about how this was a total catastrophe. Adam Arbrand gets all saucy with Sir Harris, thanking Lord Bluecock for pointing out the obvious, but let's focus on what we can do now. Well, they can't really do much. The Starks have truly pants Tywin Lannister, cutting off their supply line to the west. And Rob can march on Castor the Rock if he wants to. Maybe they should sue for peace? Peace? Tyrion swirled his wine thoughtfully, took a deep draught, and hurled his empty cup to the floor, where it shattered into a thousand pieces. There's your peace, Sir Harris. My sweet nephew broke it for good and all when he decided to ornament the Red Keep with Lord Eddard's head. You'll have an easier time trying to drink wine from that cup than you will convincing Rob Stark to make peace now. He's winning. Or hadn't you noticed? Adam Marbrand weekly puts in that they haven't lost the war yet, just a couple battles. Lord Lefford offers the idea that they could trade for prisoners, but that idea is silly too. The Starks have three times as many captives as the Lannisters, as Tyrion points out. Well, maybe Rob will trade Jamie for Sansa and Aryan. Adam goes all bros, they ain't gonna trade for a girl, come on! How about ransoming Jamie? Come on, serious suggestions now. Harris puts in that the idea of raising an army from somewhere, or another, maybe get another army together, cast the rock. Lord Tywin Lannister rose to his feet. They have my son. Leave me. All of you. Tyrion, ever the soul of obedience, excellent wording by George there, prepares to get out of town, but Tywin stops him. He wants Tyrion and Kevin to remain. Everyone else, though, get the fuck out of here. Tyrion sits his ass back down to the bench and asks Kevin to pour him a glass of wine. Shockingly, Tywin hands his own cup of wine to Tyrion himself, and then even more shockingly tells Tyrion that he was right about Ned and Rob. They could have traded Ned for Jamie and possibly, brought, and possibly bought a piece about, brought a piece about before turning to deal with Stannis and Renly, but now, with Ned dead, ain't gonna happen. Tyrion tries to put in that Joffrey is only a foolish kid and can make mistakes, just like he did when he was a kid. His father gave him a sharp look. I suppose we ought to be grateful that he has not yet married a whore. Yeesh, Tywin. God, what a fucking dick. Tyrion wants to throw his wine cup at his dad's face, but he restrains himself. Tywin then proceeds to explain how bad things truly are. Renly Baratheon has wed Marjorie Tyrell in the south, and is being crowned at Highgarden with the might of the Tyrells at his back. Cersei wants Tywin to ride back to King's Landing to defend the city from Renly and the Tyrells. Joffrey wants to march the gold <laughs> Joffrey wants to march the gold cloaks against Renly, leaving King's Landing undefended from any attack from Stannis. And. Speaking of King's Landing being undefended, it would be completely vulnerable to Stannis. Stannis. Yes, our king is starting to come into the narrative. Ah, oh, thank god. Tyrion asks, "What's up with Stannis? What Stannis and Tywin has words about this?" I have felt from the beginning that Stannis was a greater danger than all the others combined. Yet he does nothing. Oh, Varys hears his whispers. Stannis is building ships. Stannis is hiring sellswords. Stannis is bringing a shadow binder from shy. What does it mean? Is any of it true? I will give Tywin this. He is not wrong about this one thing. Tywin er orders his servant, um, his brother, Kevin, to fetch a map and he lays out how bad things are. Further lays out how bad things are. Robb Stark has cut off their retreat to the west. Roose Bolton has cut off their advance to the north. The Brother Without Banners is attacking their quote-unquote foraging parties. The Arons are up at the east. Stannis is on Dragonstone. Highgarden Storms are calling their banners. The Riverlanders will join the Stark cause. Tyrion, quite unfriendly and and atypically, tells Tywin to take heart. At least Rhaegar Targaryen is still dead. Well, Tywin ain't up for japes, and neither is Kevin. And all, the Laster army will be caught between three armies here at the end of the crossroads. But Tywin doesn't intend to stay here at the end of the crossroads. He needs to finish Robb Stark before Renly comes from Highgarden, so they're going to march to Harrenhal. Wait, Harrenhal? Yes, Harrenhal. Oh, and Kevin, Tywin has some orders for you. Unleash Sir Gregor and send it before us with his reavers. Send forth Fargo Hote and his free riders as well, and Amory Lorch. Each is to have 300 horse. Tell him I want to see the riverlands of fire from the God's Eye to the Red Fork. And then Kevin, such a touching moment in the story, bravely refuses Tywin's command on conscience grounds, right? Nope. They will burn, my lord, Kevin said, rising. I shall give the commands. His complicity in war crimes complete, Kevin bows and leaves. Now alone with Tyrion, Tywin looks him over and tells his son, or quote, son, that his mountain clansmen can join Amory Lorch if they like to in the Rapine. Lorch will be up to. But Tyrion says that they're going to do just fine without any instruction. All the same, Tyrion wants to keep the clansmen with him. He trusts them more than he does any of his dad's dudes. In that case, Tyrion, you'd best get your wildlings under control. The city is not to be plundered. Wait, the city? Yes, the city. Tyrion is going to King's Landing and to court. And what's Tyrion to do there? rule. Tyrion laughs and says that Cersei ain't gonna like that, but Tywin doesn't give a shit what Cersei wants. When does he ever? Instead, Tyrion needs to get down to King's Landing to rein Joffrey in. Tyrion blames Littlefinger, Pycelle, and that cockless wonder... I just laugh. I don't know. For whatever reason, I can't read that without laughing. And that cockless wonder Lord Varys for poor counsel to Joffrey, and oh my god, Tyrion, did you hear that they made some fucking peasant a lord? Yeah, his name is Janus Lent, and they gave him Hall, the goddamn nerve of it all. Even worse, they dismissed Sir Barristan Selmy from the Kingsguard. That guy was a fucking legend and lent legitimacy to whoever he served. Not so much the case for his replacement, Sander Clegane. You feed your dog bones under the table. You're not seated beside you on the high bench. Lovely, Tywin. Just lovely. Regardless, Tyrion is to curb Joffrey if Cersei can't, and if those goddamn counselors are playing the Lannister's false... Spikes. Heads. Walls. Tywin almost approvingly tells Tyrion that he's taken a page from old dad. But there's something that's irking Tyrion. Why him? Why not Kevin? Or Sir Adam? Or Sir Fleming? Or Lord Serret? Why not a bigger man? Lord Tywin rose abruptly. You were my son. That was when he knew. You've given him up for loss, Tyrion thought. You bloody bastard. You think Jamie's good as dead. So up all that you have left. Tyrion wants to slap Tywin or cut his dad's heart from his chest to see if it's made from gold. Instead, he sits there, quote, silent and still. Tywin walks out of the room, his boots crunching on the broken shards of the glass from the cup that Tyrion had tossed. But as he reaches the door, he stops. One last thing. You will not take the whore to court. Man, Tywin, dad of the year. What a piece of fucking work. (sighs) <sighs> Tyrion stays in the common hall for a long time before he gets back to the room below the bell tower. Trivia note, I think this is the same room that Catelyn stayed in back when she came here in Catelyn's fifth chapter. He looks outside and sees Masha Heddle's body still swinging from the from the gibbet, her flesh grown as thin and ragged as Lannister hopes. Tyrion finds Shay in his bed, cops a feel, and when she wakes, he's got an idea. I have a mind to take you to King's Landing, sweetling. Boy, I sure hope that doesn't have any consequences. Yikes. <sighs> That is the Game of Thrones Tyrion 9, the end of Tyrion's Game of Thrones chapters. Just three more to go after this one, guys and gals. Jon, Catelyn, and Daenerys Targaryen. I gotta admit, though, you know, this chapter, is there's not a lot of action going on. There's a lot of, like, just dudes chatting sort of thing. It's sort of like a podcast, right? This is like the podcast of chapters. (laughs) Just a couple dudes, like, chatting in a a big room together. What's going on in the world, so to speak. Offering, like, just saying, like, you know, white dudes chatting, especially, you know. uh, Talk about what's going on, how they're going to resolve things. But you know, I like that. I like, the, I like oh, of course, I would like that. You know, dudes, chat. But I, I like this chapter because it feels very much like a kind of a clash chapter to me, like a Tyrion clash chapter specifically. Where, you know, you know, uh, as much as I love all the different characters in in a Clash of Kings and the point of views there, I, I really feel that Martin hit a stride in writing Tyrion's chapters in Clash, and that's you know, the quality there is just going to ramp up from Clash onto Storm and then a Dance of Dragons too. Admittedly, too, I, I, I absolutely love hearing how bone the Lancers are in this chapter. Did, do you like hearing that as well? <laughs>
1: always always and okay so yeah sansa 6 and danny 9 were these intense emotional gauntlets driven by imagery and big thematic statements about the genre with all these complex layers that we were getting into with our wonderful guests Macaulay and eliana respectively and Tyrion 9 is not that <laughs> he br- If you break it down to the bones, it's basically a giant info dump that ends with a blatant stinger. Next time on Tyrion Lannister, Hand of the King, (laughs) next season on Doctor Who. That's kind of what this feels like. However, it's also an example of how to do that kind of expositional piece moving correctly, so it feels neither forced nor boring. So many of the dynamics we've been talking about lately inform this chapter and give it flavor, like basting a dry turkey. We've been primed not only to dislike Tywin and Jaime, but to consider them insufferably arrogant, so seeing them get their comeuppance here is hugely cathartic even on reread, as you could tell in your synopsis. We've been seeing Rob mature through Catalan's eyes in her last few chapters, so hearing about his latest triumph even at a distance mixes pride into the Schadenfrota. And while Tyrion is a lot more like his dad than he'd care to admit right now, as we've been covering in his most recent chapters, it is still hugely exciting to see him named as Hand of the King and take over as our central figure for a clash of kings. There are a ton of plot details to work through in Tyrion Nine, and yeah, they are kind of just delivered straight to the audience, huh. but all of them are embedded in such a way as to evoke big reactions. So it's not the most like distinct or artistically ambitious chapter in A Game of Thrones, but it is hugely satisfying and it is exciting at the end as it ramps up.
0: I think maybe that's why I like this chapter, because it is not a... Li- it's... I'm a like I was saying on Twitter today. I'm I'm a basic bitch when it comes to like these types of things, right? I mean, I I like chapters where there's a lot of exposition and dudes chatting and talking about strategy and the politics and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and I agree it's not like terribly ambitious but at the same time I I do think it it works really really well but I also like especially I love your point about how this chapter working like a season closer with a stinger as a lot of you guys know George R. Martin was an established science fiction horror writer starting getting a start in the late 60s early 1970s but by the mid 1980s he had made his foray out to Hollywood where he had written for TV shows like uh, Beauty and the Beast like the kind of reimagined one set in New York City in the in 1980s, New York City. So, and, and like, even in fact, too, like, A Song of Ice and Fire might not have even been written had the TV plot for a show that he was working on known as Doorways have been picked up for a full season run. Instead, in 93, the show was canceled and George returned to writing a Game of Thrones. And, and you know, this chapter, though, it, you're right, though, this is George's most TV writerish. Lots of pieces for shuffling, hints of what's to come, and the fun reveal at the end Tyrion is going to King's Landing as Hand of the King, or Acting head of the king, one of the two, something like that. It's, it's, it's all a little bit confused and jumbled intentionally, so. But I, I agree that this chapter, though, is not boring or forced. You know, like I said, I'm a basic bitch when it comes to Song of Ice and Fire chapters. To paraphrase the joke from The Dark Knight, I'm a man of simple tastes. I love politics, inner family tension, drama, and sword fights. That's the things that I'm into with Song of Ice and Fire. Not only these days anymore but how i first like got my interest into it and of course i love chapters where the bad guys look totally boned after seeming so on top of their game for the first you know 68 chapters of a song of ice and fire well at least until the battle of the battle of the whispering wood because man like i said earlier at the end of like my synopsis the lannisters are so totally boned at the end of a game of thrones
1: i think when when we talk about rob and tywin and this whole theater of their war there's a tendency to let presentism creep in i've seen a lot of people say that you know Rob's campaign was always a long shot and always foolish, and Northern Independence was never realistic, and Tywin was always going to win eventually. And I think that just isn't borne out when you look at how this book ends and how through most of Clash, right up to the closing minutes of the Battle of Blackwater, the Lannisters are always on the verge of losing absolutely everything. Mm. And that is stamped all over this chapter in every line, every paragraph, every bit of dialogue. When, as it opens like the news of ned's death arriving at winterfell the word of doom comes from a blood-stained messenger there was that wounded bird who brought the word of ned's death to winterfell in brand seven and now you have this this uh craycall man with blood on his surcoat who's showing up to bring the news of disaster river run and then you have Tyrion spelling out the grim toll of their march south uh from from the green fork back to this inn and you get the sense of like a horrible cyclical like pattern like oh we just come back to the same place and we haven't won anything and we've lost a bunch of men on the way and it it was it was worthless you know this 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 terrible forced march south to try to relieve Jamie at Riverrun and Rob got to Riverrun uh, days and days ago as Tyrion says so the, rob's military skills was re- rendered uh, tywin's plan pointless and we're going to get much more into the the details of rob's victory at the battle of the camps when we uh, go back to riverrun on Catalan 11 But we just want to establish here, like, just the the mood that the victory of the Battle of the Camps brings. That in excruciating detail, everything this messenger says just ratchets the mood in the room downward. Like, their situation just gets worse and worse. So you have this this paranoid feeling of these men feeling like the world outside these tent walls is just collapsing around their ears.
0: Yeah, it, it is really collapsing around them. But it's collapsing because of Tywin Lannister's arrogance. Because, you know, all the way back, if you go back to Tyrion's seventh chapter... Even Kevin Lannister was like, hey, Tywin, let's just hang tight at the end of the crossroads and kind of see how things are. But instead, Tywin Lannister is, no, beat War Assembly. We're marching north toward, to confront Rob Stark in battle. They had no reason to actually march north. Like, the more you think about it, the more foolish Tywin Lannister's action sounds. So when he's all the way up north, he cannot cross the river to get back to assist Jamie Lannister. And now he's at the point now where they force march back south. And, and, you know, this this really, really feels like a character moment for Tywin Lannister now that I think about it, because th- there really is no hope for them to reach Jamie in time. Tywin has to know that at a rational level, but he's still pushing his army south to try and cross the river to assist Jamie Lannister, knowing that there's no hope. And he's still damning his own men and getting other probably good soldiers killed and wounded soldiers left behind and people are deserting left and right, all because he's arrogant and he's trying to cover his ass so to speak and on one hand but on the second hand he's just driven by this irrational you know desperate attempt to kind of save his his child his his son as he as he talks about the at the beginning of this chapter now we will talk about the the camps for a very uh specific reason we are saving a lot of our analysis for that uh for Catlin 11 and we, we're not going to reveal it this week we'll reveal it next week in our at the end of our john episode so stay tuned for that it's going to be a lot of fun i'm very much looking forward to because i picked up a lot of interesting details this this reading around so i'm i'm, I'm eager to talk about it with uh a special guest.
1: Absolutely. And yeah, like you say, Tywin really fell into the trap in the same way that Jamie did, being lured north and then and Rob fooled him. And as you say, it wasn't particularly rational to think he could reach Jamie in time, especially since he had to know since he was fighting a almost entirely infantry force at the Green Fork that Rob's cavalry was with him and that certainly helped his mobility. So now he's in the worst of all possible worlds. It's not just that Rob Stark's prodigious military talents have screwed them over. It's that... As Tywin and Kevan outline in painstaking detail, they've got enemies in every direction. So to, to the north, you have Roose Bolton, although Tywin says, quote, Bolton does not concern me. He is a wary man, and we made him warier on the green fork. He will be slow to give pursuit. Now, of course, Tywin beat Roose, so naturally the former is going to dismiss the latter's importance. But this also sets sets us up at primes for how Roose will hold back his forces, that he's not going to be a wild card really in, in the battle early on on A Clash of Kings. For most of that book, he's going to be off screen. He's going to move only when he stands to gain, namely by taking Harrenhal from Amory Lorch. He's going to exploit his orders from Edmure to do so and then use Harrenhal as a base of power for himself. In the meantime, though, of course, as you mentioned, his presence cuts Tywin off from attacking northward towards the Neck and just as Rob foresaw. So Tywin can't force Rob to dance to his tune that way. He has to kind of find kind of a, another option of getting Rob to fight him. Roosebald is essentially
0: in, in a blocking position north of them. He's not going to move south to confront Tywin Lannister, but he can prevent any movement for him going north, either to besiege the Twins potentially or push on into Moat itself. And, you know, that's this is just the thing about this whole chapter is how, you know, surrounded essentially the Lannisters are by all of these different armies. Not all of them are necessarily going to be engaged in direct confrontation with Tywin's rather large host, but at the same time they present significant... Challenges to Tywin Laster and to his ability to affect the political and military situation in Westeros, and you know, not a, you have the North that's being blocked by Roose Bolton, but then you have further problems when you get to the South.
1: Yes, and the South awaiting him, of course, is Renly Baratheon. This is the chapter where we find find out that. Renly has crowned himself, which is of course a topic that's going to be come up in a great deal in A Clash of Kings right from the very beginning on the prologue with uh, with Stannis on Dragonstone, but for our purposes here, it's just presenting this other threat that there's a, another direction that Tywin can't move in that he has to keep an eye on. He's not regarding Renly as an immediate threat though, as you can see in this chapter. He says we must finish our business with young Lord Stark before Renly Baratheon can march from Highgarden. So he sees Renly as more of a medium to long-term threat more than a short-term problem. Tywin considers Stannis to be a significantly greater threat hmm. than Renly, presumably for the same reasons Tyrion feels that way in A Clash of Kings, Stannis' has military background and cold, hard temperament. Renly is also in a less geographically threatening position at this point than Stannis or Robb. Highgarden is a long distance from both the capital and Casterly Rock. And while Rob is already in the field, and Stannis has presumably been up to something on Dragonstone, Renly has only just called his banners and his army will take some time to assemble. However... The strength of the reach means that Renly's army will be formidable whenever it does emerge. So Tywin must quickly deal with his other problems in order to eventually give Renly his full attention. He's not talking about marching on Highgarden immediately, or, or dropping everything to defend the Red Keep from Loras and Renly the way that Cersei and Joffrey are talking. But he knows he has to keep an eye on Renly and, and see when he's going to move.
0: Right, and this is kind of a smart this is kind of a smart play on, on Tywin's part because he is recognizing that Renly is going to present a long term. Probably much more dangerous threat than potentially Robb Stark is, but at the same time, as we find out in Clash and Storm of Swords, the the Reach is able to assemble up to a hundred thousand men to join to march east on Stannis and east towards King's Landing itself. So assembling a hundred thousand men is it's will take a really really long time. And this is in before the time where you have mass transportation systems, so people are moving by foot or by horse. So it takes a long time for everybody to gather at High Garden before marching east, and you know. Catelyn makes notation in A Clash of Kings that the, that Renly's armory, army is moving especially slow. And she attributes this in part to, what, what's the, what is the actual phrasing that she uses there about like it's um, almost like a party for them. These guys are just moving slowly. They're like partying through the countryside on the way to Kingsley. Do you remember the yeah. exact phrasing?
1: Well, there's the line half the countryside is in flames or Renly is playing at war like right. a, a boy with his first wooden sword. Yeah, Renly has his, his giant mobile forces that are, are just crawling along the Rose Road. So while they're they're technically the biggest threat in terms of their armaments, they're not the most uh, immediate threat for Stannis to deal with, and not Stannis, the most immediate threat for Tywin to deal with, and you can you can see him recognizing that that here. The other element to the south, as we mentioned earlier, is Dorne, but they don't actively factor into Tywin's calculus there could be in universe reasons for that like he assumes they'll join Renly as many people do or he's deliberately overlooking them cuz he doesn't want to deal with how his treatment of their of the martells is going to lead to a backlash but it could also just be as we uh, were talking about earlier that George doesn't really have his his large term his his long term idea for the martells in place yet and he's kind of leaving them out of these discussions until he hits on uh, Tyrion's offer of Marcella and Clash so that's the south then over to the east, we have uh, Lysa in the Vale, and Tywin, I think, kind of has the same attitude towards her right now that he does towards Roose, that she's someone to be kept an eye on more than actively feared, and I think I think he gets the sense that Lysa's just probably not going to stir uh, from the eerie. Obviously, he doesn't know that Littlefinger is the one uh, manipulating her, but... Lysa, I think he can tell this is just keep hiding, hiding from him and his family behind the mounds at this point. And of course, the other great force to the east is Stannis. 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 Stannis! <laughs> Stannis! And here we have one of the one of those great lines uh, that build up Stannis in the first book before he's introduced in the second book from Tywin. I felt from the beginning that Stannis was a greater danger than all the others combined. Yet he does nothing. Oh, Varus hears his whispers. Stannis is building ships. Stannis is hiring sellswords. Stannis is bringing a shadow binder from a What does it mean? Is that even true? Uh, part of me is just curious as to what Tywin means by the beginning here, hmm. like just of the war, of the armed conflict, or is he talking about the Cold War prior to Ned's arrival, like the, the gradual gathering of factions over the last couple of years? I don't know how much of that Tywin's aware of since he's been at Casterly Rock and not King's Landing, but regardless, this gets at something we were talking about before, that you know the Stark v. Lannister struggle understandably gets the lion's share, so don't to speak. Sh- of the attention from the fandom, the Starks joined this war through a series of unexpected reversals and mistakes and coincidences, not a pre-existing tension. The bones of the conflict, the showdown everyone was building up for prior to the actual breakout of conflict was Baratheon versus Lannister. And yet he does nothing. Renly beats Stannis to the punch. And while we here at the Nauticast generally sympathize with Stannis when he (laughs) rages about that in Clash of Kings, it is a byproduct of him waiting so long to make a move. And partially that's just on George because he needs Stannis to wait for a variety (laughs) of reasons. But it's also a statement about the ambiguity that will define his character. On the one hand, Tywin's statement makes him sound awesome and badass. He's more of a threat than all these other factions combined. Whoa, that sounds wild. But on the other, yet he does nothing, hints at the fragility of Stannis' actual campaign for the throne that will plague him throughout book two. That we, he's this mysterious off-screen figure who's gathering his forces all through book one. And then we cut to him in book two and go, oh, he has barely any men. Yeah, he, He's going to turn out to be a huge threat, but he's also got this political weakness that's going to dog him and make him ultimately less of a threat than Tywin thinks he might be.
0: Yeah, you know, I was doing a little bit of reading of the Clash of Kings prologue because I'm very excited to get there. And it, it's made very clear that Stannis is has been trying to gather people to his side, but... Renly has already secured the Stormlands for himself, so he, that's out of the question. So he has to rely on the few houses that are in the Narrow Sea, sell swords and sell sails in the form of Salador Sun and others as well. So he's at a pretty big numerical disadvantage. And in terms of like these numbers, in terms of numbers, this is a big deal when it comes to medieval warfare. Renly estimates that Stannis's force is about five thousand when their besieging storms end in the middle of a Clash of Kings. That's not really much of a threat. At the same time, though, it is interesting that Tywin considers Stannis a threat from the beginning. Like we talked about in Tyrion Seven, I think that there is a possibility that Tywin thought that Renly and Stannis would be united, but possibly not being aware of the the fragile and um, terrible relationship that the brothers have with each other. But now that they're separated out, that Renly has crowned himself, Stannis is on Dragonstone, you do kind of get the sense, though, that Tywin is kind of scratching his head and being like, "Hmm, is this potentially an opportunity that we can utilize down the road? Is there a possibility to is is there a possible cause to be made with other houses that are aligned with Renly Baratheon, and that will play a big factor when we get to the Battle of the Blackwater and the aftermath of Renly's downfall, his death, um, in a Clash of Kings, which is going to be good." You know, one one of the interesting things, though, about Stannis that I think is—you know—we've talked about in the past, and we'll greatly expound upon, come a Clash of Kings—is how similar Stannis and Tywin are in terms of temperament and personality. So I I like that idea of—I felt that Stannis was the greatest threat from the from all the others combined from the beginning. I I often think that's like Tywin kind of subtly complimenting himself being like, oh, this guy's like me, so of course like he is the most dangerous guy that I'm going to have to face on the battlefield or in the War of the Five Kings.
1: I think you hit the nail on the head with Tywin seeing himself and Stannis, the two have a lot in common in terms of how they're described, their general temperament and look and appeal. And Stannis, of course, brings up Tywin when he's uh, considering burning Edric Storm and he's thinking back to looking at the dragon skulls when he was a child with Robert and how Tywin impressed them when he was hand-sitting on the Iron Throne and serving Eris. And I think Tywin would naturally regard that guy as more of a threat than someone like Robert Renly, the more kind of younger, flamboyant leader of the type that Tywin uh, doesn't particularly care for. <laughs> and pro- might associate with, with young Eris when he was more charming and outgoing and was that kind of type of person. And, of course, his father Titus. And then of course there's the other threat to the west, Rob Stark, and this is the enemy Tywin decides to focus on, because Renly is unproven and at a distance, while Stannis has yet to get into the game, so Tywin can't really react to Stannis yet because Stannis hasn't made a move. Rob, meanwhile, has not only demonstrated his skills, but he threatens both Tywin's supply lines and the Westerlands themselves. However, Tywin's army, as we said, just went through a forced march, and isn't likely to win if he takes the fight directly to River Run, especially since the River Lords that answered Edmure's summons have now joined Rob.
0: Yeah, it's it's noted in in this chapter itself that with the Lords of the Trident joining Rob's cause, that Tywin's army is outnumbered by Rob and his new River Lords alone. Factor in Bruce Bolton, who we talked about earlier, and his host being North of the Twins, Tywin is at as Stephen Atwell has said, at a near two to one disadvantage here at the end of a Game of Thrones. So Rob Stark does pose the most immediate threat. He is the, in terms of army terms, he is the 50 meter target that she that he needs to engage first before he has to focus on the 150, 200, 250, 300 meter targets down the road. Stannis, Renly, Roose Bolton, and others as well. So I think it's interesting that Tywin is is evaluating Rob as the greatest threat. I think that's somewhat tactically wise on Tywin's part that he's looking at Rob as the guy who's can really threaten both the Westerlands and their and the supply lines that run to the west, as well as threaten Tywin's army specifically, and also pose a threat, too, to King's Landing itself. Rob's army at Riverrun is not that far from King's Landing, so having that army there means that Tywin is really frickin' boned, because if he moves any direction, he allows another army to kind of have an easy pathway to get to King's Landing itself and overthrow Joffrey, kill Cersei, and, you know, there's also the fact, too, that Robb Stark has
1: Jamie Lannister, too. Exactly, and not only is he in a terrible position to march on Rob, but as you say, if he does that, he's no longer in the position to relieve King's Landing in case Stannis sails or Renly marches. And no matter what he does with any of these factions, he needs a stronger base than this goddamn inn <laughs> while he does it. And Tywin solves most of his problems by occupying Harrenhal. And I'll say, I'll give him credit. I think that that's a canny move for the most part. That he's gonna he's gonna try to, to lure Rob out of River Run to be de- defeated quickly, so Tywin can then focus on the Baratheon brothers. What do you think about that as a strategy?
0: It's actually somewhat smart. I'll I, I give Tywin that. You know, my reading of the plan, and this is essentially Brendan Blackfish's reading, you know, ironically, is that Tywin is attempting to bait Rob into launching an attack on one of the largest and most easily defensible castles in Westeros, that is Harrenhal, while simultaneously raising a new army in the Westerlands. And, you know, this is interesting. So uh, as I was reading this chapter, I was thinking that maybe Tywin is, quote, taking a leaf from Rob's playbook, as we're going to find out uh, in A Clash of Kings. You know, he's going to hole up at at Harrenhal, have a smaller force, which we'll talk about here in a moment, harass and scorch the earth of the Riverlands, wait for Rob to come siege the castle and then move his second army that he's raising out of the Golden Tooth to attack Rob's besieging force, much as kind of what Rob Stark did at Riverrun, where Riverrun is being held... By the Tullys, you have then Jamie having to divide his force and besiege the castle itself, allowing for another army to come in and then take out the larger Lancer force that's that's positioned in a Round River on itself. So I, I think it's smart on Tywin's part that he is attempting to bait Rob Stark into attacking. The problem is, is that hold that holding fast at Harrenhal means that he is exposing the Westerlands to a potential invasion, which is, you know, thankfully though that's not going to happen for Tywin Lannister come a Clash of Kings.
1: No, not at all. He's certainly not going to rue leaving that space open for Rob <laughs> to attack. And yeah, he's he's got the the other host by Stafford Lannister trying to to build up his forces there. But that host is made up of the, the sweepings of Lannisport and just the bits and pieces that Tywin and Jamie left behind. And of course, you know, it's it's not just going to pop up overnight,
0: right? And that's kind of the pl- the point where I start to. Tilt my head a little bit about Tywin's plan, because, you know, I have, quote, concerns about this. Not not actually, I'm, I'm not concerned about this. You know, if Tywin is, is hold up at Harrenhal, potentially under siege, it does essentially leave his southern and eastern flanks exposed to Renly and Stannis, respectively. So Tywin could be under siege for a long-ass time, you know, as we saw in A Feast for Crows, Brendan Tully is able to hold out in Riverrun for months and months and months while the army just kind of gathers around there. And, you know, provided that Rob doesn't attempt to take the castle by force of arms or anything like that, then Tywin could be stuck at Harrenhal for a long time. And the time it will take Stafford Lannister to raise a new host of the Golden Tooth is going to be, you know, kind of long. You know, considering that Stafford hasn't moved from the Golden Tooth prior to Rob advancing into the Westerlands at the start of Clash of Kings, it does kind of pose some... Questions, I think, about time and strategy here. And, all you know, we talked about this at the beginning, but this kind of gets at something we're going to be emphasizing a lot as we talk about Robb, Tywin, Stannis, and the War of the Five Kings, come a clash of kings, and a storm of swords. Like, how fucking lucky Tywin gets in terms of the timing of everything. Because any of these, these potential things that could... The timing of any of these potential moves could significantly impact another aspect of the War of the Five Kings. If Tywin is stuck in the Riverlands for too long, that allows Stannis to take King's Landing. If Rob Stark comes and besieges Harrenhal, that also keeps Tywin contained in the Riverlands itself, so he can't relieve any siege of King's Landing too. It's just that George has, as always, he has his thumb on the scale. He wants to have the Starks have their downfall. He wants Tywin to... Be be initially victorious in the war of the five kings and then ultimately get his ass handed to him by the and then have his and then ultimately have his plans come undone at the uh, machinations of Cersei, Varys, the Tyrells and all
1: the characters we'll get to in a piece for crows. Exactly, he pushes Tywin to the brink in this chapter and then through a series of some of his own actions but mostly a lot of domino effects brings him to power in clash and storm, but he's always showing how Uh, The brutality of Tywin's tactics when he thinks he's losing undermines him when he thinks he's winning. That once once he ends up in charge, a lot of his gain turns to ash and dust because of the means he used to to get on top. We're gonna see that obviously a lot more when we get to stuff like the red wedding and how the Martells feel about what he did during the sack. But even here, you can see that he's he's getting desperate in a way that's gonna destroy any benefit, even for just strictly his own house. I mean, the the brutality of Tywin's tactics, as he outlines them at the end of this chapter, are just just beyond or are just off the scale. I mean, we'll get more into this at the end of the episode, but suffice to say that while even terror has its purpose, to quote your namesake, uh, <laughs> Brendan Blackfish and A Clash of Kings, that's no justification for setting the riverlands afire from the Red Fork to the God's Eye. That's just uh, evil on a scale that's not only cartoonish, it's just self defeating.
0: Right. I mean, you're absolutely correct. I mean, this is a point that, you know, our friend Stephen Edwards brought up time and time again. But, you know, in the historical context of, quote, Cheveshier, which if you guys are not familiar with, is defined as the raiding method of medieval warfare for weakening the enemy, primarily by burning and pillaging enemy territory in order to reduce the productivity of a region as opposed to siege warfare or wars of conquest. You know, it, historical chevauchée never reaches the level of atrocity that Tywin is advocating for in this chapter. And, and the reason being is that even the worst medieval pra- practitioner of chevauchée, who was King Edward III, or the English prince Edward III, the English prince Edward III, the black prince, did not want a full-scale devastation of territory that he hoped to control at some point and gain some income from. And, and though the historical medieval practice has been correctly called organized medieval murder by medieval historian Robert Wilde, it was typically much more limited than what Tywin is advocating for. What Tywin is saying, basically, is burn an entire kingdom of Westeros to the ground, the region which is second only to the Reach in terms of food production in Westeros itself. You know, <laughs> just me like, kind of psychoanalyzing Tywin Lannister here, I, I feel like the reason why this his form of chevaché is so much more brutal than any of the historical forebears, or even the, histori- or even the forebears within the story itself... In, you know, the Blackfire Rebellions, in The Dance of the Dragons, in, in even Aegon's Conquest, is that Tywin has gotten his ass handed to him and he's reacting emotionally here. He's not a guy that's thinking, he's not, he, uh, while there is a certain planning that goes into it. The reason why he's advocating this widespread, wide-scale destruction of the Riverlands is because... He, got, he, he has he has some hurt feelings about getting defeated in the war of the five kings so far. So now he's going to react by then murdering tens of thousands of people and raping thousands more and burning their homes and killing their 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 livestock and burning their crops because that's that that's who Tywin Lannister is. Is is that a fair assessment of of Tywin's planning here?
1: I think so. As we said in Tyrion 7, Tywin is a guy who feels like his emotional reaction should shake the landscape and break towns and break bodies and break countries. And you definitely see that, that mindset coming out at the end of this chapter. And it's not, yeah, particularly realistic. I think it's elevated and exaggerated to capture Tywin's character and to just emphasize what the War of Five Kings is going to look like. I mean, as we're going to see in Arya's POV and a Clash of Kings and a Storm of Swords, these are the atrocities that come to define the war, elevating it from a relatively brief fight on par with, like, one of the later Blackfire rebellions to this just endless bloody catastrophe that just keeps sucking people into it. And, yeah, you know, the rampages of Gregor Clegane and Amory Lorch and above all the bloody mummers in the Riverlands are arguably where you see George's anti-war leanings most clearly. And I think you see them in how much he exaggerates them and in how much he kind of takes them out of historical context because he wants to shock and horrify you and, and put you in the shoes of the people dealing with it, who, you know, to, to them, it's it doesn't feel limited at all. If it feels like the entire world is being burned down around their ears.
0: I think it's a fabulous point because... You know, as, as we talk about in terms of historical medieval chevauchée and the burning of, of fields and crops and killing of civilians that was practiced by, especially during the Hundred Years' War, our, our sources are, are people who are of the noble classes, of people who are looking at it from a dispassionate perspective, of, of, of a classicist structure, of the nobility just kind of inflicting themselves on on the peasants of France primarily because that's kind of what, how it happens in warfare, it, but you know George's quote fair enough in his depiction to show that Tywin Lannister's that Tywin Lannister's tactics are are working towards his greater strategy. Because at some level, Tywin's plan, though, is to have these guys then force Robb Stark into some sort of large-scale confrontation with with Tywin and his army at Harrenhal. And it does work at some level because come a clash of kings, the River Lords beg Robb to take their levies back home to defend their lands from Tywin's ravagers. And Robb reluctantly agrees. You know, you have Edmure Tully talking, you know, (laughs) Edmure Tully, who did only one thing wrong his entire life, saying, Do we grow stronger here, sitting here, a host windows every day? And Catelyn snaps at him, and who's doing is that? It had been at Edmere's insistence that Rob had given the River Lords leave to depart after his crowning, each to defend his own lands. Sir Mark Piper and Lord Carl Vance had been the first to go. Lord Jonas Bracken had followed, vowing to reclaim the burnt shell of his castle and bury his dead. And now Lord Jason Malister had announced his intent to return to his seat at Seagard, still mercifully untouched by the fighting. So what we have here is that... Tywin at some level is attempting to undercut the numerical disadvantage that he's at in terms of the two-to-one disadvantage, like we talked about before. But but let's not kid ourselves. Like I said before, the level of destruction that Tywin orders is vast, so much more vast than anything we've seen in Westerosi history, so much more than what we see in our own historical medieval context. And like I said also as well, it's personal. It, the reason why he's ordering this level of destruction is that he is, again, he's had his feelings hurt, and it's a very personal way that he's satiating his hurt feelings by killing tens of thousands of people, which is just monstrous. It's utterly monstrous.
1: He definitely has a more kind of sound, methodical approach than someone like Eris in that he is goal-oriented. He has clear things he wants to achieve and his methods at least make some sense in order to achieve them. Like when Eris is like, I'm going to maintain my control by burning people alive and ordering people like it's like that's not, there's no connections between A to B and Eris' thinking at that point. He's just so far gone. And Tywin's not that, but you do get the sense when you meet him at this point in his life that this is his one move. Like, this is mm-hmm. the one tool in his toolbox, his terror. So it's just, you know, like a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so he he always applies it, always in the most over-the-top terms, even when that's going to end up with such a backlash that's going to overwhelm the benefit he's trying to get out of it. And sure, he's, he's a methodical, logical war criminal. He's not like Eris, but... <laughs> You know, what was it Eris kept saying? Burn them all. And what was it Miles Toyne told John Connington about how Tywin would have handled Robert at Stony Sept? Quote, men and boys, babes at the breast, noble knights and holy septons, pigs and whores, rats and rebels. He would have burned them all. (laughs) And and look at the context Stannis invokes both Tywin and Eris in A Storm of Swords. There's Melisandre is putting her hand on the king's arm. The Lord of Light cherishes the innocent. There is no sacrifice more precious. From his king's blood and his untainted fire, A dragon shall be born. And then Stannis talks about, like I was saying earlier, Robert taking him to court. Or Stefan taking both Robert and Stannis to court when they were kids. And then years later, our father told us that Eris had cut himself on the throne that morning. So his hand has taken his place. It was Tywin Lannister who would so impressed us. And he's talking about the dragon skulls. You have this association of Tywin with the dragons and burning people alive. So the point I'm trying to make is that is, is there actually that much difference at the end of the day between the unpredictable sadist and the controlled deliberate monster. Like, you can definitely lay out a more rational cause and effect motivation in Tywin's case, but if you're ending up at the same crimes, you you could argue it it doesn't make that much of a difference how you're getting there.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it... (laughs) What Does it make any difference to a peasant who's having his house burned and having his wife raped and having a sword thrust through his heart to be like, oh, this this was a controlled organ. This was for a political purpose and reason that all these terrible things are happening to me in my life is ending right here and now. Okay, that makes sense. uh, Please put your sword through me. That's totally fine. (laughs) Like, like, come on, guy. Like, I I, I know I, I get like the the political argument. I get like the Machiavellian argument of showing yourself as being like the evil prince in order to bring about a greater good but ultimately at the end of the day these are innocent men and women children who are being slaughtered it doesn't actually fucking matter if, like, you're doing it because you're trying to gain a strategic advantage or if you're doing it because you're a, a crazy fucking monster in the terms of the II Targaryen. It doesn't matter. And I think that's really the point that George is trying to bring across, that, yes, the people who are doing these things because they're mad dogs, the people who are your Ramses and the Seconds are, uh, or your Gregor Cleganes are doing things because they have some sort of mental illness or some sort of way that they're evaluating the world that is just not correct. and Like, that's terrible. That's terrible. But at the same time, it's just as fucking terrible to have it be like controlled, deliberate terror in order to bring about a greater political means and purpose. And ultimately, as we'll talk about significantly when we come to a feast for crows, a feast for crows, is that the the ultimate victory that Taiwan meets out with these tactics results in not a a wondrous victory that results in everyone loving the last but in a feast for crows
1: exactly what tywin doesn't realize is he's not just luring rob's lords out to their destruction he's radicalizing the small folk as we see with the brotherhood and a storm of swords and the sparrows and a feast for crows and neither of those movements is exactly fond of the starks but they know who their main enemies are beric will deal with rob but he's never going to deal with tywin and when cersei tries to blame the hideous fates befalling so many of the faith on the dirty hippie tree worshippers who came south with rob the High Sparrow doesn't buy it for a second. They they both know that the Lannisters are really the the problem here. And this order that Tywin gives, expanding on the Taisha backstory, is where George really cements Tywin Lannister in our minds and in so many minds in Westeros as public enemy number one. As the greatest threat to the people outside the forces of ice and fire. And I think there is a statement there that, yeah, you have a... a, a a mad dog, as you say, like Gregor Clegane, but he's only as dangerous as he is, as Sandro pointed out, because he's embedded and enabled by this system, and Tywin embodies that, that this is is the cold face of power, and this is what lurks behind it. You have the glorious golden lion lord with his impeccable resume and his history of capable administration. He's the ideal self-image of power, and it turns out he's a fucking monster. Mm -hmm. And Tywin doesn't even show any remorse about what he's doing. Not that it would necessarily matter to his victims if he did, but it's just so chillingly casual how he talks about it like to Tyrion, your savages might relish a bit of rapine tell them they may ride with Vario hot and plunder as they like goods stock women they may take what they want and burn the rest and this just and he then goes on to admonish Tyrion about keeping the clans in line lest the city be plundered which is just hysterically hypocritical given what he's doing here not to mention the sack that he inflicted on king's landing at the end of robert's rebellion and all, all this adds up to the revelation that he's marching on Harrenhal. And of course he's marching on Harrenhal because what he's unleashing along the way here warrants him being cursed. And you have that haunting little moment when he's looking at Gregor after Gregor's talking about cutting the eyes out of Outriders. And Tyrion can't tell if Tywin is looking at Gregor with approval or with disdain. And I think that's a great moment because yeah, you can see George just keeping just just at bay, just out of Tywin's thoughts to not know what he's thinking. But also as, as we were saying to a certain extent, it doesn't really matter if Tywin is, is looking at Gregor with this thing because he's still keeping Gregor around and he's still unleashing Gregor as this monster on the Riverlands. Yeah,
0: it, it doesn't doesn't fucking matter at all. Just a quick little thing, our word alert of the of this podcast, we have these every once in a while. Uh, Rapine is an older English word I actually did not know the definition of. I thought it was more closely related to to rape, but actually means the seizure of someone's property by force. And I didn't actually know that before looking that up. But yes, so <laughs> you have... All of these, you have Gregor Clegane there, and he's there amidst all of these other counselors, which are totally fucking useless to Tywin Lannister. I mean, Tywin Lannister is a terrible human being, and he's a monster, and he's awful, and all these things. But he's got a bunch of feckless idiots on his side. And and before we actually talk about the counselors themselves, I do kind of wonder whether the reason why these guys are so just dumb is because that tywin has made them that way that they're all afraid of like thinking independently because they've had tywin doing the thinking for themselves the entire time that they've been that he's been in office as lord as the Lord of the west and the lord of and the lord of Castle rock i I do think that's a possibility but yes they're utterly fucking useless
1: i think that's a great point i think you see that even with tywin's family dynamics that he's he's been so overpowering and overwhelming that his children can't really get any oxygen and never develop a leadership profile independent from him, which makes his legacy kind of fall apart after he dies and they're left with it. But as you say, yeah, Gregor is just one of a bunch of buzzing flies around Taiwan in this chapter, and a lot of the catharsis and kind of humor of this chapter comes from their impotent fuming. Harris Swift just keeps yelling that this is a catastrophe, and Adam Marbrand can only talk about how much he wanna fight he wants to fight Rob, and everyone has kind of half a point about what's going on, but no one has an actual strategy. No one's talking about what they can clearly do next. And this is in clear, embarrassing contrast to how, like, effortlessly Rob put his northern coalition together and used it to wipe Jamie's army off the map, and then he's joined with the Riverlords and added them to his coalition, and he's just so much more politically effective right now than Tywin. And it's also, of course, a parallel to Tywin's diagnosis of the problem in King's Landing. As he says, I blame those jackanapes on the council, our friend Peter, the venerable Grand Maester, that cockless Wonderlord Varus. So then, he's got a similar situation here, but all these these useless counselors who are giving him bad advice or just ass-covering advice, and suddenly the glorious Lannister regime he's worked for for so long is fragile. He's lost his chosen heir to his enemies. The next generation seems suspect, and he's left with the feasting crows, as you say. And there's the, the sense that he's much more worried than he has been in a long time. And again, he's come off as so kind of arrogant and presumptuous so far that. It's very—it's so pleasing to watch him kind of break. And there's that quote, Lord Tywin wove his fingers together under his chin. Only his eyes moved as he listened. His bristling golden side whiskers framed a face so still it might have been a mask, but Tyrion could see tiny beads of sweat dappling his father's shaven head. It's like, oh yeah, we're getting to see Tywin sweat. (laughs) That is great. Oh my
0: gosh, it's so great to see time and sweat in this chapter. It makes, it just like makes my heart beat a little bit faster there and and the thrill of it all. You know, the, the kind of the interesting thing too about all of these guys who are, like you said, ass covering and things like that. Contrast this to Rob, who, as Catelyn notes in, I, I want to say her seventh or eighth chapter, I think her eighth chapter, where she comes up to Mo Kaelin, Rob is listening to his counselors. He's trying to get advice. He's trying to work with these guys and bring them into his inner council. So much like that Stark does, where he used to bring, like, everyone to Winterfell, bring them to, uh, from the lowest small folk that's working for him to some of the high lords in, in the north as well. These are people that Rob is empowering as leaders and empowering them to make them love him. Tywin has built this regime of fear in the Westerlands, so all of these guys are like, oh shit, man, we fucking lost. And now like, oh God, we're we're, we're in trouble. Like, whoa, we 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 gotta we gotta well, this is a total catastrophe because it is a catastrophe for them because you know not only do they have to deal with the fact that, you know, they have a victorious enemy who is now at that two to one advantage of them numerically in terms of their army. They also have to deal with the other threat, which is the form of Lord Tywin Lannister, who has a reputation for staking his um, reluctant to rebellious lords in the ground, cutting their heads off and burning whole cities to the ground, too. So you could see like where, you know, this ultimate idea, this Machiavellian idea is better to be feared than love doesn't necessarily work in the context of Tywin Lannister because he has overemphasized fear fear to the fact that he's made these guys these craven worms who can't actually provide any sound advice to Tywin Lannister, any sound strategy and tactics and and any sound strategy and tactical input for how the War of the Five Kings should proceed. It's Tywin who has to figure out the strategy and he's got no one there to help him besides maybe Tyrion Lannister here but at the same time like even Tyrion is pretty freaking terrified of his father. Although it's, a, it's 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 in the subconscious in this chapter, it's clear that Tyrion is aspiring to gain his father's love and his acceptance, and is kind of taken aback by some of the things that Tywin says. But he's also not providing him advice because he's also not been empowered the same way that Robb Stark has empowered his subordinates in the North to carry out the War of the Five Kings and also to make his governance of the Riverlands and the Riverlands in the North much more. Good and much more um, embedded with subordinate leadership.
1: Perfectly said. Yeah, I mean, Tywin's saving grace comes from a place he never would have expected. It comes from Tyrion, who he hasn't really brought along as his heir, but has kind of absorbed a lot from him, as a lot of characters pointing out. And it's interesting to see how Tywin and Tyrion are paralleled throughout this scene. Both are staying silent for the most part as everyone else chatters, the messenger and and the various lords. They only strike in with their big dramatic lines. Tywin comes in with, you know, they have my son. And Tyrion comes in with, you know, there's your peace, Sir Harris. My sweet nephew broke it for good. And, you know, Tyrion has these silent, scornful thoughts about Lord Brax's folly during the battle and Harris Swift's idiocy in this meeting. And I would definitely bet money that those mirror Tywin's own when it comes to those two guys. And... Uh, Kevon speaks Tyrion's own thoughts, quote, a good deal more calmly than Tyrion might have. Hmm. And as, Tywin tells us, Kevon is t- as Tyrion tells us, Kevon is Tywin's vanguard in council. So that suggests that, indeed, Tyrion and Tywin are thinking along similar lines here. And we know, of course, above all, that Tywin agrees with Tyrion's central diagnosis. That, yeah, my sweet nephew broke the peace for good and all when he decided to ornament the Red Keep with Lord Eddard's head. You'll have an easier time drinking wine from that cup than you will convincing Rob Stark to make peace now. Really strong dialogue. The chapter as a whole has so much great dialogue, a lot of which was taken word for word by Game of Thrones. And what Tyrion is getting at here is that the Lannisters' central problem isn't really Rob, <laughs> it's Joffrey. Mm. Even the quote catastrophe of Rob capturing Jaime and crushing his army at Riverrun could be d- dealt with with a hostage trade if Joffrey hadn't ordered Ned killed. Now Rob and his lords are in it for blood, and his sisters won't be enough to end the fighting. The problem really is political more than military, and so none of the strategic considerations under discussion here are going to be enough unless someone goes to court and brings Joffrey to heel, and Tywin picks Tyrion for the job. And it's it's interesting because Tyrion has these this more mixed reaction than he has on the show because, of course, the book has access to Tyrion's inner monologue. So Tyrion, at at one level, he's he's more pleased than he cares to admit because, of course. As you say, he's still kind of scared of Tywin and still doesn't want to admit to himself that he wants Tywin's love and affection. The other part of him wonders if he's being sent to hold the left again, like in the Green Fork, if he's being given the weak, dirty job and is, is kind of being uh, left out on the limb by Tywin because that's just how the Tyrion-Tywin relationship goes. <laughs> that even in this moment of, of the closest thing to trust between them, Tyrion is still wondering if he's being screwed. And it's it's interesting to consider why uh, Tywin trusts Tyrion in this moment. All he offers is, you are my son as a response, but... I think it's more he feels like uh, whoever he sends to court has to have the cojones to take on Cersei and Varys and all those schemers. And he's thinking like, Kevon, mm, probably not. Probably not going to do it. Kevon's much more of a follower. And like, yeah, of course, Tyrion has this diagnosis that Tywin agrees with. So you can imagine Tywin in this scene th- like melting down instead of thinking, oh, we're, we're so screwed. All these people are useless. None of them are saying anything worthwhile. And Tyrion jumps in and Tywin goes, oh, that wasn't just a snarky joke that was actually an accurate assessment so f- for the first time tywin is seeing himself and Tyrion in a positive way that he's seeing Tyrion not just as a representation of all that's stunted and ugly and titus like inside tywin all that he hates about himself but Tyrion is mirroring the aspects of tywin that tywin likes and that he's not being like one of those jackanapes in king's landing or in tywin's tent but and so on the one hand that's that's just a, a great moment for their relationship and the closest thing they have <laughs> to forging a connection but on the other hand you see that tywin has to end this chapter with one last knee-jerk reassurance that Tyrion is not going to turn out to be another Titos. he can't help himself he will not take the whore to court he just he can't he has to stick that last knife in before he leaves the room and you know that comes back from tyrion that that kind of mutual wounding back and forth because in this moment in which lannister hopes have grown thin and ragged the family on his shoulders for the first time Tyrion's first move is defiance. I have a mind to take you to King's Landing, Sweetling. <laughs> so even as you have kind of Tywin trusting Tyrion for the first time and Tyrion stepping up to take control of the Lannister legacy, you still have this poisonous father-son dynamic that you know at some level is gonna ruin everything.
0: Yeah, I I think I think George is obviously setting the pieces up for that dynamic to come crashing down in a significant fashion. Like we talked about when we were talking about uh, Tyrion 7, about the uh, finding out if, if Tywin is going to shit gold, and that, that line being set up for the actual downfall between Tyrion and Tywin. So this was always in the cards that Tyrion would be the one to kill Tywin Lannister. I, I do think, you know, I I, I like your positive spin, as, as always. I, I like your interpretation. Uh, my, my interpretation, though, is, is a bit more of, of Tyrion holding the left for Tywin in this case, the way he puts it in this chapter, because I think when, when you look at it, Tyrion is the perfect fall guy, right? If, if shit goes real bad in King's Landing, then Tywin could be able to say, well, this was this is my dwarf, my very much a dwarf son here, fucking it up yet again, and you know, this is actually not my son in actuality. My son is Jamie Lancer as I've said over and over and over again. And, I, you know, I, I think that there is something to be said with Tywin entrusting Tyrion with this responsibility of basically be, being Tywin Lancer in King's Landing. At the same time, though, there is a plausible deniability in having Tyrion in King's Landing because of his physical deformity and his ability and, and the overall Westerosi prejudice against those who have that specific uh, disability. So uh, it could be a little bit of both at the same time. It could, not, it could be that Tywin is attempting to test his son and seeing his son is acting like Tywin for the first time. At the same time, it could also be Tywin 2 being like, well, if shit goes bad, you know, I, I just have a, a perfect fall guy. In the case that things go really bad for us down in King's Landing.
1: And that's an excellent point. Tyrion is a disavowable asset to a certain extent. And there might just be some cognitive dissonance going on where Tywin is recognizing Tyrion's worth because he has to in this moment, while also still reserving his kind of deeper feelings of, of hatred and resentment towards Tyrion that will come exploding back out come a storm of swords when Tywin himself shows up in King's Landing. But speaking of setup for the future, I think that about wraps us up for uh, the, the depth portion of this episode, and that takes us into foreshadowing and groundwork.
0: Absolutely. So what the first one's a bit of a more minor one, but in the recounting by the courier who comes to Tywin's camp at the end of the crossroads, he talks about the south camp was under the command of Sir Forley Prester, who is a character that we will be meeting up with again at various points in the narrative, including possibly, probably the, the Winds of Winter prologue. He apparently retreated in good order when he saw that the other camps were lost, with two thousand spears, as many bowmen. But the Thai Roshi Selsword, who led his free riders, struck his banners and went over to the foe. So George R. R. Martin has admitted that he um, kind of forgot about the Tyroshi Selsword guy, you know. <laughs> Kind of, you know, it's interesting to wonder, like, what his role might have been in the story had George remembered him. I, I do kind of wonder whether maybe the character Greenbeard, who we meet as a Brotherhood Without Banner member, is the Tyroshi sellsword, although that is not confirmed by George. So I-, I think it would be interesting, right, to have this guy be like, you know, I- I'm done with the Lancers. I'm-, I'm good with joining the wing side. And then eventually being like, I'm done with the Starks too. Let me join the side that's actually defending the small folk. And, and I do kind of wonder, you know, basically, George, give us the Greenbeard novella. That's all that I'm asking right now.
1: The Greenbeard slash Shrouded Lord novella, for sure. All these kind of shrunk and deleted characters. But yeah, I've always liked that detail. Like, we're not trying to, like, make fun of George or anything. I think it's it's kind of heartwarming that he can't necessarily keep all these characters straight. How could you? You know, the, the fans have a tough enough time, and, you know, the author can't can't win them all either. You can't win them all. So that's, that's a, a nice little piece of abandoned foreshadowing, I think. Another uh, a kind of more dramatic piece of setup from that last line of Tywin, you will not take the whore to court. That sets up the, the head fake of Aliyah and a clash of kings as both Cersei and Tywin believe her to be Tyrion's lover, Tyrion's lover and she suffers for it because he appears to have broken this this agreement with his father with her. And then you, of course, get the ultimate payoff for it, which is Shay in Tywin's bed at the end of A Storm of Swords. Kind of everything comes full circle for the Lannister men. So you can see George... Building towards that that climax by constantly slipping lines like this into every Tyrion Tywin conversation, so you know that even when they're getting along better than they usually do, there's always this this division waiting to destroy them.
0: And of course, we also see in the the form of Shea being in Tywin's bed that Tywin is a total fucking hypocrite. He brings his quote whore to court in in the form of having her be in the hand of in the in the tower of the hand at the end of a storm of swords. And, you know, we, I think we talked about this in the past and we will talk about this again. We get to A Clash of Kings, but there is a lot of evidence that the tunnel that is being built to Aliaia's, uh brothel in, in in King's Landing was likely built by Tywin Lannister as a way to secretly, subtly have have sex workers brought to Tywin's chambers. And a little bit more foreshadowing here, was we talked about, is that we have this idea that Cersei has the Hand's daughters, that is Sansa and Arya. If we give his sisters back... And then as Sir Adam Marbrand snorted deceitfully, he would have been an utter ass to trade Jamie Lannister's life for the two girls. And he's right, because, you know, I was reading Clash of Kings, Catelyn 1, just before we came on air. Rob is going to refuse this move, and he's going to be very shamed by—he's uh, going to look kind of like red in the face and have to walk away from his mom. Um, but, Catelyn is going to be, is, but Catelyn is going to give in after Brandon Rickon, quote— die in a clash of kings so this is something that is interesting right we are having a lot of setup for things that are going to be happening come the end of a clash of kings the start of a storm of swords being written here and this is something that is um might be of interest to those who are more interested on the meta side. You know, George had written all of Tyrion's Storm chapters while he was writing A Clash of Kings itself. So it's likely that he had some very distinct ideas about how different things were going to progress in terms of the hostage exchange, Catelyn freeing Jamie Lannister in order to get his girls back, or in order to get her girls back, and various other things that are going on here that are that have the the seeds being planted in this chapter.
1: Exactly. Once you kind of set up that rob is is going to be doomed at some point you you have to get jamie away from him because jamie is his meal ticket to avoid something like the red wedding trading him back to taiwan and suing for peace so once you set that up then you have to start getting coming up with ways to get rid of jamie and get him out of that camp so then you can see the foreshadowing for that here that uh, where george is just seeding the idea of, of trading Jamie for the sisters and then you have the backlash to it, you know, emphasizing that this is going to be a politically risky and unpopular move once once eventually we get to it in A Storm of Swords. Tyrion nine also features our very first mention of Melisandre whoa, whoa. as a, quote, shadow binder from shy that Stannis has recruited. Now, in A Clash of Kings, it's mentioned that Selyse took up with Melisandre several years past, so the timeline has really never been clear about how exactly and when, when exactly Melisandre joined Team Dragonstone. Regardless, it seems all but certain that the Red Woman arrived on Dragonstone prior to the death of Jon Arryn. And Stannis' flight from King's Landing. So she's been at this a little while, setting herself up on Dragonstone and insinuating herself with everyone involved. Like, Of course, we're going to get into that in much more detail in The Clash of Kings, but this is clear that George has not only spent a lot of time on Stannis in terms of his temperament and backstory in this book, but is also paying attention to his supporting cast going forward.
0: Yeah, I, you know, my, my, conspiratorial, my conspiratorial mind is wondering, like, when did Varys actually know when Melisandre arrived at Dragonstone? Why is he choosing to reveal this information now? Is it because he just learned? Or was he holding this card for a time to play later on down the road? Is now the time to, that Vars plays the card? How is Vars in communication with time? I mean, there's so many questions I have about some of the <laughs> actions of Vars specifically in this chapter. But we can push them aside because we'll get a lot more Vars when we get into a Clash of Kings. Uh, finally, in terms of our quote, kind of more minor foreshadowing portion, Kevin Lanzer talks about, quote, a man who fights for coin is loyal only to his purse. like. The bloody Mumbers, maybe Kevin Laster. Is that something that you might want to keep in mind when you hire yet another sellsword company to come to Westeros to fight on behalf of of you? Maybe you don't want to leave that sellsword company sitting in Hall and as the primary larger force holding the garrison at Hall itself with someone who could potentially have more money to purchase and buy you out and someone who seems seemingly on the winning side. Is, is that something you maybe want to like keep in mind when you hire sells? I don't know. I'm you know I'm not. I'm just not. I'm not a smart guy, so I, I don't know if, if my questions are really something that uh, should really be worth taking taking consideration of
1: oh shucks no i think you nailed it there kevon often represents like the public face of house lannister that is immediately revealed to be hypocritical by what their actions are actually but by what their actions actually are and you can definitely see this with yeah a man who fights for is loyal only to his purse but then tywin promptly trusts the bloody mummers and they <laughs> they will eventually turn on him and back Bruce bolton instead Shocking. but speaking of an uncle kevon We've talked a lot about Tyrion and Tywin in this episode, Jeff, but there is another Lannister man present in this chapter, and that is Kevon. And while Tywin's clearly a villain and Tyrion is following in Dad's footsteps, Uncle Kevon's pretty cool, right? Varys describes him in A Dance with Dragons as, quote, a good man in service to a bad cause. And Varys is never wrong, right?
0: Oh, Hammett. Is this payback for all the times that I've baited you into talking at some length by making some absurd statement? you know, to kind of get your blood up. Is that what it is? This is right now. Sure is buddy. Well, you know, it's work. It's, it's working. It's working. It's working. Yeah. So excellent. (laughs) I mean, first things first. I mean, I I do, when we're talking about Kevin last year, there's, there's a lot to talk about. Um, You know, I've been talking about him now, I feel like for 30 years. Uh, So, but you know, it's, we have to have to kind of limit our discussion to talk about Kevin Lannister's personality and conduct in the War of the Five Kings specifically here. And we are going to have a hell of a discussion about Kevin as Lord Regent Comma Feast for Crows, and A Dance with Dragons, and his likely culpability in Cersei's Walk of Shame. But you all know me, like I've said, I've spent years damning Kevin Lannister as a war criminal in various outlets. So let's focus on that for the here and now. So Kevin Lannister, what what a guy, right? Uh You know, As he's defined in the story, he is called by Aunt Jenna the Lion Shadow, where she's talking with Jamie in his fifth chapter, and she says, It has been hard for Kevin living all his life in Tywin's shadow. It was hard for all my brothers. That shadow Tywin cast was long and black, and each of them had to struggle to find a little son. Tiget tried to be his own man, but he could never match her father, and that just made him angrier as the years went by. Jirion made japes. Better to mock the game than to play and lose. But Kevin saw how things stood early on, so he made himself a place by your father's side. So that is essentially the way that we are supposed to look at Kevin Lannister. He's essentially Tywin Lannister's shadow. He's the guy who is consistently backing his brothers, his older brothers' play in various forms in politics and war fighting and in all the ways we see in the main narrative when he's first introduced to us in Tyrion's seventh chapter in a clash in in a game of thrones Tyrion thinks sir, Kel- sir kevin seldom had a thought that lord tywin had not had first and then again it's also brought up in Tyrion's third chapter in storm of source sir kevin was his brother's vanguard and counsel. Tyrion knew that from long experience he never had a thought that lord tywin had not had first and then Tyrion thinks again in, Tyrion, in his sixth chapter about Kevin that he would make a passably good region if someone pressed the duty on him, but he will never reach for it. The gods shaped him to be a follower, not a leader. So that is essentially how Kevin Lannister is shown in his personality. He is a more secondary to minor character in the books, but I do think he is important and represents something really important in the narrative to A Song of Ice and Fire, as well as to the narrative overall and how we look at these types of characters in the story. Now, Talking a little bit about his history prior to the War of the Five Kings. So we know from the extended Westerlands chapter of the World of Ice and Fire that Kevin Lannister rode side by side with Tywin in brutally extinguishing the rain Tarbeck Rebellion. There's nothing to indicate that, you know, Kevin was like, hey, brother Tywin, maybe we shouldn't, you know, throw a fucking six-year-old down a well or something like that. You know, that seems like this just wasn't in the cards for kevin at any point at any point in time we also know that he was a, he was at he was present at the sack of king's landing we know this because in the epilogue of a dance with dragons kevin indicates that he was present when the bodies of aegon and raeys were laid in front of robert baratheon so he was there when tywin sacked the city and you know this is more speculation than anything else but i wonder whether kevin quote had a thought regarding the sacking of king's landing telling tywin's war council that they were re- what they were really going to do when they reached King's Landing, I think that probably some of the West lords were probably like, so are we going to aid the II? And Kevin's like, no, 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 I have this amazing idea that I'm going to present to you all as it is my own idea that I have thought for the first time that no one has ever told me to ever think or speak aloud in a council setting before.
1: I think you can see George is very interested in the the plight of the younger brother or the middle child or the overlooked member of the family that's something that comes up a lot in the song of ice and fire obviously the most prominent example being john but you also see that with a character like theon or stannis crescent talks about stannis growing cold in robert's shadow which is somewhat similar to how Jenna describes her brothers as being in Tywin's shadow, but Kevon is an example of someone more like Victorian, wherein they just got, got close with the Big Brother from day one and started imitating and broadcasting their legend hmm. and their agenda throughout. So Kevon never really developed a persona beyond being an instrument of Tywin's will. So you can see him kind of becoming uh, tainted with Tywin's actions as, as they go along. He kind of re- remembers a Tywin that existed before all these atrocities and resentments, but he's, he's very clearly followed Tywin down that road and doesn't seem to have ever tried to drag him back towards the light, so to speak.
0: Yeah. That's a really great point that he had, he remembers Tywin as when they were kids together, but at the same time, it's not like, well, if only Tywin had not gone down this path, I could have saved him. It's never like brought up that way. In fact, it's always that Kevin has attempted to emulate Tywin in his conduct in in various ways. So, before we, we get to some of that a little bit more, and we will get to more of that in A piece of Crows and a Dance with Dragons, of course, Well, let's talk a little bit about Kevin in The War of the Vikings specifically. You know, we're first introduced to Kevin with him bragging about how he's been active in the in the then successful Lannister campaign the Riverlands in which they were quote burning out the Pipers in the Brackens, Mark your father and I have been marching on each other in turn. Uh, it, so it, burning the burning out the riverlords one by one. And then of course here in this chapter we see Kevin again as the active, willing participant in Tywin's destruction of the Riverlands. Unleash Sir Gregor and send it before us with his reavers. Send forth Vargo Hote and his free riders as well. And Sir Amory Lorch each is to have three hundred horse tell them I want to see the riverlands a fire from the gods eye to the red fork. They will burn, my lord, so Kevin said, rising, I shall give the commands. He bowed and made for the door. So we're seeing again that Kevin's an active, willing participant in much as he was in the rain Tarbeck rebellion of doing these kind of brutal, awful, evil, shitty things. And he's basically acting as his brother's instrument in these things. And though we don't have a point of view of Kevin's exact actions during the War of the Five Kings... Arya does observe him as side by side with his brother Tywin when they move from Heron Hall in an attempt to cross back into the Westerlands. And the quote is quote, Pale light filled the yard when Lord Tywin Lannister took his leave of Heron Arya watched from an arched window halfway up the Wailing Tower. His charger wore a blacket of dappled crimson scales and gilded crinit and camphron. Camphron, that's a word. While Lord Tywin himself spotted a thick ermine cloak. His brother, Sir Kevin, looked near as splendid." So we have, again, Kevin being side-by-side with Tywin, and that's exactly how we should be evaluating Kevin Lannister. As we talked about earlier, he's the quote lion shadow, moving with Tywin, operating with Tywin, trying to be like Tywin in every possible way. And in being Tywin's shadow, we see Kevin as the same sort of, well, war criminal that Tywin Lannister is. There's zero hesitation when Kevin is told to dispatch Gregor Clegane and Amory Lorch child murders and rapists both to burn the Riverlands from the God's Eye to the Red Fork. There's no indication that Kevin lifted an eyebrow as Tywin rounded up the Riverlander's small focus, slave labor at Harrenhal itself. There's only Kevin at Tywin's side issuing out Tywin's immoral orders without question. And look, I've heard the arguments over and over again that Kevin has no choice in the matter. This is a song of ice and fire in a feudal society and, everyone, and you know, everyone has a choice. And But that that's not true. Everyone has a choice, especially in a military context. The first thing we were talking in the United States Army is the la- is the law of land warfare, which puts rules on how to conduct warfare itself. You know, personal story. At, at infantry school, we were presented with a scenario. You have an intractable enemy who you've surrounded, but they're able to survive because they have a source of water. Do you poison their water supply in order to win? No, you, you don't poison the water supply to win. I mean, that's, that's like it, you could think about it for a second, but think about the long term consequences of what you're potentially going to do in that scenario. Think about the long-term consequences for what is going to happen when you burn the Riverlands from the God's Eye to the Red Fork. Kevin has a choice in-universe. We know this because Ned was faced with a similar choice back in Eddard Eight: Participate in the murder of Daenerys and Viserys Targaryen or resign your handship. And what is the choice that Ned Stark makes in that chapter?
1: He makes the choice to throw his handpin in Robert's face, as he should. And of course, that doesn't neatly resolve all moral dilemmas. As we said when we were covering Eddard, it's not like Ned is able to prevent Robert's planned assassination of Daenerys and Viserys in any way. He's kind of just making this lone stand, but sometimes that's all you can do. And we see that valorized elsewhere in the series, when Davos stands up to Stannis and tells him that the claw Isle attack is terrible, and he's kind of being a hypocrite in a lot of ways, and Stannis listens to him. And You have examples where the king doesn't listen, of course. You have uh, Carlton Chelsted, one of Eris's hand, who defies him and gets burned alive for it. But I think you can see George getting across pretty clearly that just as people like Gregor need someone like Tywin to enable them, people like Tywin need someone like Kevon to enable them. You need people who seem kind of decent hearted and well-intentioned and rational to make justifications for you. Because if Tywin was only ever served by people who thought and felt exactly like he did, he'd be able to cause a lot less damage than he can. People like Kevon give Tywin cover. And so you can, you know, hold up uh, their resumes side by side and look at them in scenes and say, okay, Kevon seems like a more preferable guy than Tywin on the whole. But if, if, if Kevon is helping Tywin along every step of the way and doesn't even seem to, have any struggle or dispute over what he's being asked to do, then as we were saying about Tywin versus Eris, does it matter that he seems like a kinder, gentler guy individually? Not really.
0: No, no, it really, really doesn't. You know, I I love the example you bring about Davos defying Stannis at the Sack of Claw Isle. You also have Davos defying Stannis too in saving Edric Storm. And, you know, Davos is willing to bend the neck and accept, you know, beheading in order to save an innocent that's the example we're supposed to look at and be like, that's who I want to aspire to be in the story, not Kevin Lannister, because he has a choice to not participate in Tywin's moral conduct. Yes, the consequences of defying Tywin Lannister could be death. As you pointed out, you saw that in the form of Carlton Ch- Chelsted, who accepted death as the alternative to carrying out Eris II's immoral orders the alternative though and the one that kevin cho- chooses is co-conspiring in the murder of tens of thousands the rapes of thousands more the destruction of people's property and food which is essentially murdering tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands more people after that and, you know maybe killing hitler rather than carrying out his orders maybe the, the motif we should be going for maybe that's the strain of thinking we should be advocating ab- regardless now, I, I know that there is a major argument out there, too, which is, that's just the way the war was back in the day, or my absolute favorite argument. Stop applying modern moral values to a fantasy book series, and without fail, every goddamn time a discussion of Kevin Laster as a, quote, war criminal comes up, some dude, always a dude, so weird that it's always a dude, comes in with a line about applying moral values to a fantasy series. Or the smarter Lannister apologists talk about how George is relaying a historical understanding of chevauchée without assigning moral value to the actions taken. And to be fucking frank, I hate these arguments on, on several different levels. On a plain historical level, we, we talked about this before, but chevauchée as medieval military practice was somewhat limited, whereas the scope of what Tywin and Kevin do in the Riverlands far exceeds the level of destruction that the most egregious practitioners of that type of warfare did. But I think my greater irritation, though, is over this idea of, quote, not embedding our morality into Song of Ice and Fire. And I think, you know, this is kind of going beyond Kevin Lancer itself. But I think this argument is a too common one. And I do understand why it's made at some level. There is a real danger in a historical thinking regarding historical events, putting a modern context and spin on things like, well, why do they just elect people who are, you know, elect people to confront the king or something like that. And th- th- that term is that people are looking for is called historical presentism. But here's the thing about Song of Ice and Fire and about fantasy fiction. This isn't a history book. It's a modern fantasy fiction story written by a modern still living author. And beyond that, there's a real sense of moral horror felt by the author at what's happening in the Riverlands, as you alluded to earlier. Like like you talked about, you can't read Arya's Clash chapters and not see Martin's own anti-war feelings over the hellscape that Tywin and Kevin create in the Riverlands. So I think, you know, honestly, we're absolutely supposed to regard the story from a modern lens. And honestly, that's what makes *The Song of Ice and Fire great fiction that causes us to wrestle with the issues presented in the story and reflect on it as it pans out in a modern context. You can't read Danny's chapters in Marine and Dance with Dragons and consider the Iraq War, the occupation of Iraq, and how things can feel so moral at some level, That, but then look at the outcome and see the disaster that affects the entire region because of Danny's actions. Think about the dragons. Think about how George has categorized them as essentially as nuclear weapons. Do you use nuclear weapons to secure peace? Do you just have them as a deterrent to war in the future? These are things that we deal with in modernity and that that we were dealt with in the Cold War specifically, too. So these are all things that George wants us specifically and explicitly to allude to in a modern context. And, you know, A Song of Ice and Fire is also great, too, because it allows me to say that Kevin Lancer is a fucking war criminal and I hate him and I hate the love that is surrounding this guy in the fandom. And I wish it would stop. Amen. The end.
1: Damn straight. Yeah, I agree with everything you were saying there. I think, first of all, it's just not possible to keep your own personal sentiments and your environment and your backstory out of your head when you're reading a book that's just nonsensical and ludicrous like people talk about us imposing your modern values but it's it's the it's the other way around it's it's not organic to try to keep your thoughts away from it like that's it's just not realistic I don't think George did that like yes of course he's drawing from medieval history but as you were saying he's inflating What's actually happening, because he's going for a certain operatic view, not just realism. And he's being informed by modern warfare and modern issues as well. I mean, certainly Vietnam comes up in his understanding of, of the civilian casualties of war. So you, you have to take these things into account. And it's, he's offering a very particular artistic perspective on these events, which is, is not nearly as, as detached as some people seem to think. He, he, the horror comes through strongly. The, the complex psychological realism angle is when you realize, oh, there's no silver bullet to solving these problems. It's not as easy as someone like Danny might hope to think that it is. But that doesn't mean that these problems themselves stop being horrible. It's just that the s- solutions are intractable and it's not as easy as pushing, pushing a, a button. But part of how George gets you to understand that desire to just push a button and fix everything is he makes these issues so horrible in the Riverlands and also over in Slaver's Bay. So you understand the character's yearning desire to fix everything easily. So I think... Yeah, I think when it, when it comes to a character like Kevon Lannister, it's perfectly appropriate to t- use terms like war criminal, because I think part of what George is trying to show us is our understanding of what an idea of someone like a war criminal is evolves from our history with situations like this. And if we're going to get forward to any kind of better understanding of how to t- treat each other as human beings in war or peacetime, we have to look back at even unquestioning good Germans like Kevon Lannister and realize <laughs> that those guys, too, can be taking part... In, in in terrible terrible actions. And that's not to just say we're superior than them or just wag fingers at a different time. So much as you know, always try to come to an understanding that monstrous actions don't have to be committed by an obvious boogeyman. And they can be committed by someone you might respect or, or, or might relate to. And I think some of the the backlash to criticism of Kevon Lannister is about that. And I think it's it's good to, to stare characters like these in the face and recognize that once you let the words leave your lips they will burn my lord you have committed yourself to that path and i think yeah we see the outcome of that pretty unsparingly in arya's chapters going forward and that's definitely going to be something to keep in mind when we get to get to those arya chapters cuz the horrors come thick and fast
0: Yes, they do. Just a few weeks now, baby, till we get to those chapters in Arya's Clash of Kings Hark, and that's going to be a lot of fun. So I think that about wraps us up for Game of Thrones Tyrion 9. Thanks, everyone, for listening. As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Acast, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts.
1: For sure, check out our Patreon, if you haven't already, at patreon.com forward slash not a cast, A-S-O-I-A-F. We're getting closer to our far $5,000 a month stretch goal, unlocking our patron-only episodes on George R. R. Martin's 1982 vampire novel, Fever Dream, as well as doing uh, much more live streams, doing them monthly instead of quarterly, as we work our way through a Clash of Kings chapter by chapter, so check that out if you haven't already. Follow us at Notacast ASOIAF on Twitter or shoot us an email at Notacast ASOIAF at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brennan B Fish on Twitter,
0: Brennan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics Advice and So, join us next week for Jon Snow. Remember him? He's also in the Game of Thrones, as Lord Snow has to make the big dramatic choice that Maester Amen warned him about hmm, what is he going to choose? I don't know. I, I I don't read, so I don't know what's going to happen in Clash of Kings.
1: Yeah, it's the, the classic young genre protagonist moment of, of choosing your loyalties and choosing what quest you're going to go on. Again, it's it's a lot like this chapter in that it feels very much like the ramping up of excitement and action leading into book two. And while we we make fun of some of the more kind of emo tones of, of John's <laughs> chapters in book one, it is very satisfyingly constructed, and you do feel everything coming together in his final chapter in terms of all his... His his loyalties and all his advisors and all his decisions, it all all comes together. So that's going to be a, a great episode for sure. Yeah, I can't wait to do that with you, Ben.
0: So thanks for listening. We will see you guys next week.